Well, some years ago, Robert Fulgham wrote a book, All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. If I were writing that kind of a book, it would be titled, All I Really Needed to Know I Learned Riding the School Bus. <laughs> For instance, I learned that you don't want to ride in the far back of the bus. That's where the trouble comes from. The people who ride in the back of the bus are trying to get as far away from the driver as they can. I also learned that the ones who sit in the front of the bus are the rule followers. And they are also the ones who will tattle on those not following the rules. And then there are those in the middle of the bus. They're not all caught up in rules and tattling, but they don't want to be a part of the trouble crowd either. I was kind of a middle of the bus rider. Well, when I was in first or second grade, there was a girl who rode our bus who was very outgoing, happy, and confident. I remember her in class, the way she would answer questions, ask questions. I would think, well, I wish I had her confidence, which meant that she was a favorite of the teachers, which meant that she could become a target of other kids' jealousy. So one afternoon, we're riding the bus home after school, and I become aware of a commotion in the back of the bus. There are a, a couple of boys who keep chanting this name over and it's always boys, isn't it? The boys are the trouble starters. They're chanting this name, and I turn around, and I, I saw that they were directing it at this girl, and I could tell by the look on her face she didn't like it. So she finally turned to them and said, stop it. Well, what do you think that did? Just egged them on even more, except other kids then joined in. They started chanting the name and taunting this girl over and getting louder as they did it. The girl got louder in her protest. Stop it, I don't like that, stop it. I guess the bus driver was so used to some kind of noise coming from the back of the bus, she didn't pay much attention to it. But when she got to the stop of this girl, the girl ran down the aisle to get off that bus as fast as she could. And when she went past me, I could tell she was sobbing hard. And as she exited the bus, the kids rolled the windows down on the bus so that they could keep chanting at her as the bus rolled away. And she walked up her street, sobbing with her hands over her ears. <laughs> Things you remember, right? What I remember from riding the school bus that day is when enough voices come together, they can tear down the most confident of souls. We're looking at a question of Jesus today that applies especially to anybody who has ever been torn down by criticism, and condemnation. It's Jesus' question, where are your accusers? It's a simple question, but the conditions surrounding it are anything but. <clears throat> I want to look at this story from the perspective of two different levels of accusation. I want to consider it, first of all, from 
the idea of accusations which we don't deserve. That element is in the story. Accusations which we, we don't deserve. Notice how the story begins. Religious leaders brought to Jesus a woman who had been caught in adultery. How did they catch her in the act? Was a jealous husband involved? Did he report his suspicions to the religious police? What did they do, hide in the closet? How long did they look before they acted? There was a rabbinic tradition at the time that said, if you see your fellow Israelite about to sin and can stop it, you're obligated to do so. (laughs) So much for religious leaders following rabbinic tradition and so much for them following the Torah. What they did say to Jesus is the law says to Stoner, what do you say? Now, that's not exactly what the law does say after all. In the Old Testament, what they're talking about comes from Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Where's the man? It takes two to commit adultery. Where's the other person? Why just the woman? It's funny how prejudice and biblical faithfulness can be a good cover for each other. Just a thought, just a thought. The story does tell us what the religious leaders were up to. They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him. In other words, if they could get Jesus to disagree with them and condone the woman's behavior, then they can report that he is not following Mosaic law. If Jesus agrees with them and says, well, you're right, she should be stoned to death, then he would risk the support of the people who were following him and his message of love and forgiveness and grace. But, but here's the point. What you see going on in this story is that the religious leaders did not care about the woman. They were just using her. They had another agenda. They were only concerned about accusation. And it reveals a certain truth for some people that there are those who only want to accuse. And those who do reveal they've got another agenda going on. Those who just want to accuse, they've usually got another agenda. Sometimes it's because people need to feel better about themselves by tearing somebody else down. Their agenda is in order for them to feel good about who they are, they've got to make you feel less about who you are. Sometimes people accuse in such a way because they're getting revenge. You did something that hurt them, and instead of going and acknowledging that and working it out, they've got to hurt you back and wound you back. So they accuse. Sometimes, sometimes people accuse because of prejudice. They, they look for what you're doing wrong 
not because they care about you, but because of your skin color, because of your sexual orientation, because you're a woman, because of your nationality. There are all kinds of reasons. Have you ever experienced somebody accusing you in a way that you didn't deserve it? You didn't deserve it. Maybe there are those of you who were told you're unworthy, you're a failure. You haven't done enough with your life. You're ugly. You'll never amount to anything. But, and this is a most important but, not everyone who accuses us has a wrong motive. The truth is we all have faults. We all need people to help us see ourselves as we really are. And they will be courageous enough to speak the truth to us. The challenge is knowing the difference between the two. You could call this making the distinction between critics and prophets. Critics just stand on the sideline and tear down. Prophets speak the truth, but they get in the game to help us. Prophets in the Old Testament could be brutally honest, but they always paint a picture of a better future. They speak the truth in order to improve, but knowing the difference, oh my goodness. There's a story about jazz musician Cab Calloway. He was at a famous jazz club and introduced a young promising saxophone player. After the person performed his set, a self-appointed critic came up to him. And Cab Calloway was standing there and the critic said, boy, you're not that good. All you can do is play like Charlie Parker. Before he could respond, Cab Calloway took a saxophone, handed it to the man and said, well, good, you play like Charlie Parker. Think of all the things somebody like that could have said. Somebody could have come up to the boy and said, you're as good as Charlie Parker. Oh my goodness, you're going places. It is so important to be able to distinguish the difference between critics and prophets. What helps you make that distinction? Let me offer some questions to you that might help you think about what do you do? What helps you to distinguish between prophets and critics. One question might be, is someone just telling me what I can't do, or do they also point out things I can do? Is someone just making me feel worse, or also encouraging me to believe I can be better? Are there people who show up only when I fail to point it out? Are there people who show up only when I do well? And are there people who show up at both times? What are other ways that help you determine the difference? Sometimes we face accusations we just don't deserve. We have to develop ways, means to see our way through it without being torn down, without holding on to the words all our life. But there is another level of accusation in this story. 
We don't just face accusation for things we don't deserve. We also face accusations for things we do deserve. And that is in this story as well. Regardless of the motives of the religious leaders, the woman in this story had committed moral failure. She had sinned. And her sin was paraded before the entire village, before everyone, her family, her neighbors, God. And when the religious leader said, this woman deserves death, don't you think she would have probably sat there and said to herself, oh, please do. Please do. How am I ever going to go on with my life now? But it says... Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. There's a lot of speculation about what Jesus was writing on the ground. Some people say he was, he was writing the sins of the religious leaders, that that's what they were looking at. But we don't know that. We have no way to prove it. Some people say, no, what Jesus was doing was just doodling while he gave himself a moment to come up with a response. It's just kind of hard to imagine Jesus needed time to think of something to say. Dr. Gail O'Day, New Testament scholar, says, no, that's not it at all. In that time, to do such an action in that culture and custom was a way of telling somebody, I'm just not going to have this conversation. I'm not going to engage you. Have you ever had a hard conversation with a family member and they don't look up at you the whole time you're talking to them? They watch TV. And you get exasperated. You, you can't tell if they're listening or not. You finally get down in front of them and say, do you hear what I'm saying to you? And they do this. <laughs> now, what are they telling you when they do that? Are they telling you, I really want to watch TV right now? No, they're not. They're saying, I'm not going to have this conversation. I'm not going to talk. You could say that what Jesus was doing when he bent down and wrote on the ground was he was giving his finger to the religious leaders. But they would not quit. On and on and on they went. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Just like kids on a school bus. So he stood. And he said, let the one who goes without sin cast the first stone. <clears throat> Let's be clear to understand what Jesus did not mean by that statement and what he did mean. He did not mean that you have to be sinless in order to judge. He did not mean that you have got to be pure and without any fault in your life to call out any fault in another person's life. If that were the case, we would never have a conviction in our country. Alec Murdoch would be walking free right now. Rather... What Jesus meant in saying these words is that those who judge must be willing to face judgment themselves. He doesn't let those who judge 
get away from facing judgment. And what that means is it keeps us from becoming fault finders when we never allow ourselves to have things in our lives called out. We just become people who find fault in other people. Bless my dad's heart. After his retirement, he, he kind of let their house fall into disrepair. And as he got older, it, it just kind of got worse. The back steps crumbled apart, big cracks in the ceiling, chipped paint all over the house. But my dad, he, he was always going to get to it. No, 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 I've got a plan. Nobody could get in the middle of it and say, well, Dad, we're just going to take care of this. No, no, I'm going to do that. Funny thing is, whenever my dad came to visit us, he would no more than get in the door than say, you know, you're going to need to do some work on those steps. Well, you got a crack up there in the ceiling. Well, this place could use a fresh coat of paint. It got to be where our family would just kind of laugh about it, but it does reveal something that's very true, and it's very true of all of us. We all tend to spot the faults in other people that we know we're disappointed with in ourselves. The things we get upset with ourselves about that we wish we did better, we wish we could improve, those will be the very things we see in other people. Oh, I know that person's problem. Look at it. Look at them. And Jesus would not let the religious leaders get away with that. He said, let the one among you who goes without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, starting with the oldest to the youngest, they dropped the rocks they held in their hands to throw at the woman. And they walk away. Rocks now littered on the ground around this woman, leaving just Jesus and the woman alone. And Jesus looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? For the first time in this story, somebody spoke to the woman. For the first time in this story, she's not being treated as an object, as bait. She's being treated as a human being. But before she can answer, Jesus gives a follow-up question. Is there no one to condemn you? And she says the obvious. No one, sir. And then if you feel, if you feel the weight of the story, if you could dare put yourself in this woman's shoes, what you hear next makes you want to weep. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice Jesus did not just say, oh, oh, forget about it. It wasn't that big a deal. Notice he didn't just disregard it altogether. He did call it out. I know you sinned, but go and start new. You deserve a second chance. Colleagues of... Robert Downey Jr. were once asked, who would you rather be? Tony Stark, the fictional 
brilliant, billionaire, playboy, superhero, Iron Man? Or would you want to be Robert Downey Jr. himself? Shockingly, everybody said, I'd like to be Robert Downey Jr., not the superhero. I say shocking because of Robert Downey Jr.'s career. You might remember when he first got on the scene as a big-time actor, starring in major pictures, his addictions caught up with him. They just ruined his life. Addiction to hard drugs, cocaine, heroin. He just wasn't able to produce pictures anymore, showing up late. He was blacklisted by Hollywood until he was rescued by somebody, Mel Gibson, which is interesting because shortly after that time, Mel Gibson, who appeared to be the perfect family man who never made a misstep, had an alcohol-induced outburst of his own that had racial overtones in his words, and he got sent to Hollywood's wilderness land. Well, when Robert Downey Jr. was given a comeback award, he asked Mel Gibson to be the one to present it. These are Robert Downey Jr.'s words. I asked Mel to present this award to me because when I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up hope, and he urged me to find my faith. It didn't have to be his or anyone else's as long as it was rooted in forgiveness. And I couldn't get hired, so he cast me in the lead of a movie that was actually written for him. And he kept a roof over my head, and he kept food on the table. And most importantly, he said that if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoings, and if I embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, hugging the cactus, he calls it. He said that if I hugged the cactus long enough, I'd become a man of some humility and that my life would take on new meaning. And I did, and it worked. All he asked in return was that someday I help the next guy in some small way. It's reasonable to assume that at that time, he didn't imagine the next guy would be him or that someday would be tonight. So on this special occasion, I humbly ask that you join me unless you are completely without sin, in which case you pick the wrong industry in forgiving my friend his trespasses, offering him the same clean slate you've offered to me and allowing him to continue his great and ongoing contribution to our collective art. He's hugged the cactus long enough. There's a time in which we all need to hug the cactus. We've done things in our lives we regret and we don't need to excuse ourselves. We don't need to blame or pretend it's not as bad as somebody else. We need to take responsibility to hug the cactus so that we can hear the words of Jesus. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. You deserve a second chance. Notice in this story that at the end, when the woman would be free to go, there's just a bunch of rocks on the ground. They're no longer in the hands of accusers. 
And what it means is that when Jesus comes on the scene, accusers fade away. Jesus' verdict is always stronger. And maybe today, some of you know what it's like to live with accusations. Maybe accusations you don't deserve. You still live with things that were told to you that that hurt your soul. But you need to hear that voice of Jesus. I don't condemn you. It's time to let that go. Your accusers have moved on. Some may carry within them today things they regret that they know they did. And the worst accusing voice is your own, telling you you're not worthy of forgiveness. But the closer we get to Jesus, the more we have to believe that what he says is true, that we are not condemned if we accept that fault, if we recognize it, we are not condemned. And he wants us to live with a second chance. As we close the service this morning, as Mindy and I worked on this service, we thought this would be a good one to give you a souvenir, something to just help you remember it. Maybe not today, but when you need it. So up here in baskets, up in the balcony, over here on a stool, we've, we've got these little stones. Stones that might remind us of accusations. And on the one side of the stone is a sticker that says, no accusers. And as we sing our closing hymn, I invite you just to come up if you'd like to get one and keep it with you somewhere. Put it on your desk, put it in your car. And when the, when the recordings in your head start to play, grab the rock, just rub it in your hand. Remember, there are no accusers. There are no accusers. We are forgiven. We are released. You never know. You never know when you might need it. So gracious God, for an ancient story that changed the direction of a woman's life we do not know. A story that without Jesus in it might have meant that her story would have ended that day. That would have been it. But because of Christ, she had a future. And we all do. But we can allow other voices and sometimes our own to believe, to cause us to believe that's just not true. So may we just take this little stone in our hands today to remember now, but also for days ahead when we'll need to remember again that it's what you say about us that has the most permanent power over our souls, that you are a God who loves and forgives and wants to give us a future and a hope. In Christ's name we pray.